Um, to start off, before this goes down, I want to show you guys uh, a commercial. Maybe you've seen it. Can you plug that into the into the thing? I think it's the first one. Um, you guys may have seen this. It's a State Farm commercial. And uh, it's about marriage. And it's about never. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. I'm never going to have a minivan. Okay, here we go. I'm sorry. I'm never getting married. Never. Guaranteed. You picked a beautiful room. We're never having kids. We're never moving in the suburbs. We're never getting one of those. Oh, yeah, isn't it good? State Farm is there. Isn't it good? So I just wanted that as an intro to our topic tonight, which is marriage. And uh, for the next couple, probably two or three weeks, we're going to talk about that. In fact, in three weeks, we're going to actually have a married person in here to talk to you about marriage. Because as you think about me, I'm 51 years old and I'm not married. And uh, you might think, well, what this, what's this guy <laughs> know about marriage? And I would say to you that the only thing I know about marriage is that uh, my parents have been married for 67 years. They got married in 1948. They're 86 years old. Okay? And so, what's that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's that? Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, okay. I didn't know what that was. It's like, I didn't, I, you caught me off guard, Ernest. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah, so, so, uh, in general, um, you know, I've, I've got siblings, you know, all of my siblings are married, and, and some of them have been married like now, like 35, 40 years. I am old, you guys, and when I was 10 years old, I was an uncle. Okay? Um, yeah. So I've been around a lot of marriages, okay, and I've watched and I've observed. Uh, but you're right, I've not been, I haven't been on the inside looking out. But the scriptures are here to teach us what it's about. And, and so, um, that's what we're gonna look at tonight. But recently we had someone in our midst who just got engaged. He's not here right now, but you guys may have heard last week that Jonah, yay, and Mariah, what's her last name? Morgan, Ryan Morgan, just got engaged. Um, and so that's a wonderful thing. And that's really young. Okay, like, how old is Jonah? 19. He's like 19. Okay, but here's the crazy thing. My brother Chuck, my brother Charles, Chuck Garriott, who some of you have met, he's been here before. And he literally got engaged uh, like the week before his freshman year began. That's kind of crazy. His... Future wife or my my sister in law Debbie I think was a year older than he was, and uh, he just like prayed and can you imagine though before you get to your first class your freshman year you're already asking for Elias is shaking his head he's asking I would like your daughter's hand in marriage he already did that it was crazy but you know what he felt called by God and. Uh, they they got married probably like a year and a half later or something like that. So, you know, he was like working part time, like going to school and, you know, and they, they survived. 
Um, they survived. And so, amazing, amazing stuff. So we're, tonight we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, or you can look up there if it's still going to be there. Um, this is probably the main text on marriage in the Scriptures. It's the like the locus classicus. It's like the text uh, that we see all through, uh, that, that we come back to time and time again about this idea of marriage. But in, in some ways, marriage is really the whole picture of the Bible because we have God creating the man and the woman in His image in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. Um, you know, He creates the woman. And, uh, and so what we have really is the whole Bible is really almost like a story of marriage because we have God as the groom, the Lord Jesus as the bridegroom, coming for His people, the bride. And so all, so this whole... Like picture, metaphor, paradigm of marriage is just all over the scriptures. You just can't get away from it. And actually, where are we going? We are going as the church to the wedding feast, feast of the Lamb. That where is this all going? It's going to a big party uh, with Jesus, and we're gonna. We are the bride, and we're gonna go and be with Him. And so, um, but in this passage in Ephesians five, Paul really lays down some principles and some ideas about marriage. And so uh, we're going to look at that. And again, a lot of the things I'm talking about come from a couple places. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, which I, I recommend whenever I do marriage counseling with, with uh, couples. And I've done, bunches of, I've done bunches of marriages and weddings, okay? And uh, I always make them read this book and the Bible. But I make them read this book. And if they have time, I tell them, there's these wonderful sermons by Tim Keller on this passage. There's nine of them. And so some of the ideas are coming straight out of Tim Keller's, um, some of his sermons on marriage. Okay, so just want to be up front with that. Um, let me pray. We're going to read and then uh, we'll get into this. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for tonight. Thank you that we can come to you. We can look in your word. And we can think about this idea of marriage. Um, we can think about you as the author of it. And uh, we can think about the Lord Jesus as the one who was at the wedding of Cana in Galilee affirming marriage to be between a man and a woman for life. And Father, we pray that You would help us even as we think about that uh, with our many fears, our, our <laughs> ideas of never, I'm never going to do that, uh, or whatever it is, whatever we bring to the table, we ask Jesus that You would be here, Your presence would be here uh, as we think about these things and consider uh, your word, and we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are in Ephesians 5, and I'm going to start in verse uh, 15. So I'm actually going a little bit before verse 22 is where the typical break is, where it talks about wives and husbands. And I'll tell you why we're doing that after we get there. <clears throat> Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this ends the reading of God's holy word. So we're talking about marriage, and one of the things that, Keller's book talks about is the fact that uh, he asked this question, why are people not getting married? Uh, because more and more in our culture, what we see is less and less. People are getting older and older before they get married. And that percentage is getting higher and, or lower and lower in terms of the people that actually do get married. In fact, in our culture, here's the decline. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. Okay. Uh, in 1970, 89% of all births were to married persons. Okay, 89%. Now only 60% are. Okay, in, the ni- in 1960, over 72% of people in the U.S. were married. In 2008, that number was 50%. Okay, so you can see the drop off. So the question is why? You know, why aren't people um, not getting married? Let me just open that up to you guys. What do you think? Why? Why do you think? It's declining. Yeah. I think culturally speaking, people are, are starting to see, like, or have the opinion that it is okay to be with somebody. And it's like, if I'm already committed to someone, there's no need to get married. Um, so I guess, mm-hmm. so that I'm committed to The contract. Them. We don't really need the contract. We don't need the contract. And a lot of people, not everyone, sees has that view on those who just don't get married. Okay. I don't need to. I yeah. Mean, I'm committed to this person. I don't need to have a ring, a wedding, and all that stuff. Right. That's just a piece of paper. Like, we love each other. We're together. Right. Yeah. Also, I think people don't want to commit. They, don't, they want, like, an easy way out. Okay. Like the prenup. It gets expensive. It does, yeah. To go through the ceremony and all that. Yeah. The individual has like reigns, you know, and we are the most individualistic society. And so this idea of marriage and family and commitment and everything is, is like taking like a back seat 
almost. And it's about career. It's about advancement. More and more people are like saying, hey, I got to do this. I went to, I went to college. I've got, I've got my degree now. I got to do these things first. And then maybe when I'm in my 40s or 50s, uh, then I can get married, you know. Um, yeah. Modern family. Yeah. Yeah. So people right. are kind of buying into that concept of I can be a single mom and have a child, I can be a single dad and have a child, and stuff like that. Yeah. There's also another respect of families. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's, we really are going through a shift. Your generation, you know, and even starting before this is, is going through a major, um, major shift in terms of, um, how our culture views the institution of marriage and all that sort of thing. In fact, um, let me give you some of the ideas. I, and I said some of these things too, but um, one of the things is uh, there was a, um, this guy by the name of Dan Shapiro did a movie or a documentary called Monogamy in 2008. And he interviewed like 50 couples who had, who had seen their marriages dissolve, okay, like break up and divorce or whatever. And when he was asked why he didn't do a movie on the long-term, happily ever after couple, you know, um, he said this, all happy couples are the same, which is to say they're just boring. Um, I mean, that's pretty sad. Chris Rock said, uh, said it like this, quote, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? So there's just like this really awful like idea that like two people committed to one another going through thick and thin, you know, hard times, bad times, like that's not exciting. Like that just doesn't make it. It's better to just like be wild and crazy and like j- jump around. But I mean, that's how like, <laughs> what do we do? We The scriptures, Proverbs talks about like we, we call good evil and evil good. I mean, that's that kind of thing is happening like in our culture. Um, but... You know, I would challenge that statement. You know, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? I mean, um, you know, marriage, it is hard. Uh, no doubt about it. If you ask any married couple, your parents, etc., like they're going to talk about, like it's, it's not always easy. It's not. But it's, it's uh, God uh, also works in it in an amazing way. Um, and he blesses and everything. Some other fears. Fears about marriage. One is um, fears of our own weakness, fears of our own failures, your own lack of strength to stay committed. I think that's one of the fears. People are afraid of commitment. They're afraid that they're just going to fall out of love. Like it was such an emotional high, and they think that's, and and all of a sudden when that drops off, like they think, well, I guess I fell out of love with that person. Um, It's not right. I'm out. Okay. Um, Fear that the other person or you will change. Um, you'll fall out of love, you'll not have the strength to hang in there, or that person loses the hot factor or whatever. But people, you know, people are going to change, okay, over time. And the question is, are you going to be committed to love that person? Um, and is that person going to be committed to love you as you get older, as you, 
um, maybe go through sickness, go through health issues, whatever happens. One of the saddest things I remember of one of my youth group students in Oklahoma um, was seeing his mother had a serious disease, had a brain disease called Huntington's disease. And uh, some of you might be familiar with that. But as that disease progressed over the years, like his father decided to, you know, basically divorce um, his mother and and go ahead and like marry this other woman. And um, it was just a really hard thing because and this woman, the, the, the his mom later died, um, you know, but it was also hard to just like grapple with that idea of like, OK, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, you know, in sickness and in health. But if this happens, I'm it's not fulfilling me and I'm I'm going to hit the road. Um, so, yeah. So just thinking about the strength that it takes, like to be committed if that happens. Um, the fear of responsibility is one of the things or commitment. I mean, I keep naming the same things, but, uh, you know, um, you know, it's a major responsibility to care for someone and to be responsible for someone. And we live in a culture. We like freedom. We like individual individualism. We like, you know, doing what we want to do. And marriage is saying you're committed to one another. You're a team. You know, you got to help one another. You've got to talk to one another. You've got to plan your schedules out together. You know, I mean, it's a team, you know, and um, that's a lot of responsibility. And some of you might be thinking, well, I can't even keep my goldfish alive. How am I going to like help? You know? <laughs> how am I going to get married and stay in there? And, and then if I have kids, how am I going to keep them alive? You know what I mean? Um, it might be fear of your own personal family history. You know, some of you have seen maybe in your families, your, your own parents or um, uh, or your relatives, you know, divorce, you've seen, you know, hard times, you've seen difficulty, and that might just scare you to death. Like, hey, I, this happened in my family, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run from that. Um, one of the big things about marriage is it will kill your idea of control. Okay, a serious committed relationship will will take the control idol and it will smash it to the ground and it will continue to smash it to the ground because and that's a good thing. Okay, but the thing is, when 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 we're trying to control our situation and you can't control another person. Okay, it comes to the fact that you have to love them and be committed to them, but like you can't control them. And then when you have kids, like you can't necessarily totally control them either so marriage and family is is hard because we have this idea where we like things in control and then another person committed relationship that's hard okay um perfectionism okay is another thing i believe why people aren't getting married um they got to meet your list at 90 at least 95 percent maybe okay check it off so some of perfectionism is the idea we have these unrealistic expectations of Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright or whatever. And so when that person doesn't meet them, we think, oh, it's not right. I'm out. OK. And so sometimes we, we have an idealized and idol factory in our heart saying like they have to be this. They have to live up to this idea in my in my heart, in my life, my mind. And if they don't meet that, then like they're out. And so. The, the challenge for that is, is like anybody going to meet your unrealistic expectation? And I, and I would say, no, they're not. So part of this is like 
when you're thinking about dating, when you're thinking about friendship, commitment, marriage, like you have to, it, it will challenge you to look at your own heart and say, do I have an unrealistic expectation here? Like I have 55 things that they meet, but there's another 25 over here that are minor things that they don't meet. Does that mean like it's over, ditch it? Probably not. That's probably like unrealistic expectations, okay? Um, fear of change. Uh, we don't want marriage to change us. Did I say that already? Um, we want to, we want fulfillment. Um, and so, uh, marriage will, marriage is a commitment and you might not be able to do what you want to do because now you're married and then maybe you have a family and you can't maybe do the same goals that you had before. You have to adjust. Okay. So there's lots of, there's lots of, uh, reasons out there and, and probably tons more, but that's, and, and you guys said a bunch of them too. Um, but this pair, this, this passage here is saying, um, that marriage is glorious. That marriage is amazing. That marriage is this picture of the, the bride, uh, submitting to Jesus, the, the Lord of heaven and earth. And that marriage is actually really, uh, a picture of the ultimate marriage. And so God puts this in the center of His, like, salvation plan. This idea of marriage. And, uh, when people, when two people get married, He's like saying, that is a picture of Jesus' love for the church. So, like, you gotta hold that out there and say, marriage is not just, like, some thing that man, like, started or whatever back in the Iron Age or whatever. Or, you know, through evolutionary process, they finally found out, hey, this would be a good idea. This was in the garden. This was in the mind and the heart of God when He made the man and the woman in His image. And He said, you know, I want these two different peoples to come together as one, as one flesh. So, we're going to talk about tonight preparation, posture, and the power. Okay, so preparation for marriage. Um, and that is uh, the gospel. What is the preparation for marriage? Um, here's what Paul says in here. You have to get the gospel yourself. He says, basically, that you have to be filled with the Spirit. And so, if you look back in the passage, I turned it off, but 18 to 21, he said, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is before he gets into the specifics of marriage. He says, Address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing. Make melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so, what Paul is saying at the beginning, and this is, as you think about preparation, how do I prepare myself for marriage? Okay, maybe I'll never be married. But, how do I prepare myself to be a person who glorifies God and is prepared for marriage, if that's in God's will for you? Well, you prepare for marriage by being filled with His Spirit. You prepare for marriage by going back to the gospel. And that's really what Paul's been talking about all through Ephesians. He's talking about the fact that we were uh, dead in trespasses and sins, uh, that we were sinners, that we were selfish, and that we needed to be saved, <laughs> that we needed to be justified by Jesus and His blood. And he said that's a, that's a free gift by faith, by grace, by Christ. And so the whole... First three chapters of Ephesians going into chapter four is all about this wonderful picture of God's love for them. And he's saying that when you're filled with the Spirit, that's by believing in Jesus. And He gives you the power 
to love. He gives you the power to love the Lord and He gives you the power by the Spirit to love other people. And last week, I had the pictures of the trees, you know, and we talked about Spirit-filled relationships and we talked about how there's a good tree and a bad tree in our life. And the good tree is the one that's settled on Christ and the roots are deep in the Gospel. And because we're believing, the Spirit is feeding us and out of that comes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And on the other hand, when we catch ourselves in our sin and our sinful behavior, if we would look beneath the surface, we would see we're probably, we have some control idol or we have some perfectionism idol or we have some pride idol that we're actually believing instead of the gospel of Jesus and who he is. And because of that, that pride or whatever that is, out of us comes lying. Out of us comes, uh, you know, um, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, that these two trees are going on. And so Paul's like saying the preparation for marriage is you need Christ. And so making this application wise, that's why it's really important to date a Christian. If you are a Christian, you want to date a Christian because the preparation for marriage is to say, I want someone who believes the same things I believe. I want someone who has Jesus in the center of their life too. Because if you have Jesus in the center of your life, that means you're making all of your decisions based on Jesus and His will and His Word. Okay, and so if that's who you are, and you're thinking about like, hey, I want to serve God, I want to love God, I want to glorify God with my life. Um, I love His Word, I'm reading that, I'm, I'm, I, I love the church, I love these things. So then if you... If you connect with a person and have a serious relationship, a dating relationship with a person that doesn't have Jesus in the center of their life, typically what happens is is Jesus gets pushed out to the suburbs, is what Keller talks about. Jesus gets pushed out to the suburbs. Because um, what you're going to find is is the person... You might get along great. You might love the same movies, the same music. You might... You just like like the same you know sports events or whatever it is or play golf together or tennis or just have a great time together and you can have that with a person that's not a believer but when it comes down to these big things of like um, what are we going to do on Sunday morning <laughs> or you know what about the church and then we have kids and you think about like well are we going to bring the kids to church like are we going to teach them about Jesus so then you have all of these these major conflicts because like you're going this way and they're going that way. And so, in this preparation for marriage period, our goal is, is to understand the Gospel deeply and find another person who understands the Gospel deeply. I talked about C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, his book, The Four Loves, which I highly recommend. But he talks about friendship, love, as two people shoulder to shoulder looking at the same horizon. And what drew you together was like you liked, we like books or we like movies or we like, you know, this TV show and that kind of drew us together and like we talk about that and that's like part of our friendship. So we're looking outside and that's what's keeping us together. Well, that's what it's to be for Christians dating. It's like your view, your horizon is, is the Lord Jesus and who He is. And the, and you're both looking at the same God. You're both believing the same God and so you're united in that. Okay, so that's really important as you think about dating, as you think about um, who are you going to date and what would be a good date. I mean, it's one thing, like Keller talks about, it's like one thing to go to the prom with somebody who's not a Christian, but it's another thing like, hey, if you're in a serious relationship 
with someone who's not a believer. You really need to like think about that. You need to really pray about that, and you need to seek God and say, God, is this really what you want? Um, so gospel preparation means that uh, the preparation for marriage is that you're soaking in the gospel yourself. And he says this even here. He says, you know, be filled with the word of God. Verses 19, you know, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord. And what he's talking about is the church people are like, this is what you're to do, church. This is what you're to do, Christians. Like, praise God together, worship God together, love God together, serve God together, everything in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, and so when you're filled with the Spirit together, um, that's a continual process. It's not a one-time thing back there when you became a Christian. But it, Jesus saves you back there. But the evidence of your salvation and the fruit of your salvation is that you continue to want that. You continue to want to repent and know Jesus. It's like, it's like you know, you put gas in your car, right? Once. Is that all you do? Just once and you drive and drive and drive? No. You have to continually go back to the gas station, right? And get more gas. And that's the same thing. Like God wants us, as we prepare for marriage, to live out the Christian life, continually go back to the Spirit and believe. Okay. Um, the second thing is the posture of marriage. Okay, the posture of marriage. And what should marriage look like? Um, what should the interaction of the husband and the wife look like? Um, so it looks a whole lot like Mutual submission. Okay, in this passage, you hear the big S word, the submission word. It's like, oh, like, what is that? Like, wives submit to your husband. That's so archaic. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. So, what I don't want you to hear is kind of like this image in your mind of like the male chauvinist pig, you know, um, like the dominating husband, you know, coming home, like the wife is like in the kitchen and like I just think of that like that scene in the wedding crashers like give me some meatloaf give me have you guys seen that like where he's yelling give me some meatloaf Uh, I just think of this scene of like this horrible relationship where the husband is just bossing around the wife okay and I feel like that's that's what society has said like this passage is about okay Um, kind of like the husband is some sort of dictator he's demanding things, you know, and he's abusive and he's harsh. And that is not the picture we have here. Um, the picture we have here is, is the picture of the Lord Jesus, okay, who left heaven, emptied himself of all the glory, puts on flesh, you know, lives in poverty, serves and loves people and goes and dies for them and lays down his life. So that's the picture of the husband's role, Okay, and so, but before we even get to that in verse 21, it says, um, before the passage starts, and it's interesting because in your Bibles, the wise, like when, it, when the Bible has like these he- subheadings there, that's not in the original Greek text. Okay, the, it's just, and there's not even verse like things in the original text. It's just like, right, right, Brandon? It's all just like the words together. Okay, so, He's talking right before this, and people don't even talk about this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the very first thing he says is that the Christian is the one who submits to one another. The husband and the wife submit to one another. There's a mutual submission going on. And so that's really important to think about because the number one reason for divorce is selfishness. It's like I've changed my mind. I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I've, 
I want to get a new model after 20 years, okay? Uh, I want to do what I want to do. And so um, what mutual submission says is no. Um, out of reverence for Christ, again, going back to the Gospel, because He is the head of your marriage, you're saying, I need to submit to King Jesus and I need to love you. Even though I don't maybe feel it right now or maybe the romantic fire is gone for a little while. And he's saying, no, you, you stay committed, you submit, and you, you mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. It's more about your faith in Jesus as well. So it's not about you. A marriage is not about you. It's about Jesus and it's about the other person. Um, and so it's a give and take. There's lots of discussion. There's lots of talk about what the other person wants. About putting them first. Like, oh, what kind of food do you want? Okay, I'll try that. Uh, uh, you want to do this kind of job? Well, let's talk about it. Let me help you think through that. Um, and it's it's really this idea of back and forth and, and mutual submission. I'm going to spoil something, Ashley, so you close your ears. But like, I, I really like the show Friday Night Lights. And uh, Okay, the very last, the very last episode. Who's, who's watched Friday Night Lights? Anyway, it reminds me, it's, it's about football and high school in Texas, and it really reminds me of like Oklahoma when I lived out there, because like the culture is like exactly the same. And so, th- there's a great character, it's a really int- good wedding, or good marriage in that show between Eric Taylor, the head coach, and his wife. And, uh, and so, at the very last season of, like, the last episodes, okay, like, totally spoiler alert, right? Um, there's this conflict, because Eric Taylor's been coaching football for, like, 20 years. Okay, where are you? Where are you? He, he's been coaching. Are you, are you watching, like... I'm in the middle of the fourth season. I'm sorry. Can I go on Okay, step out. It's, it's such a good illustration. I need to talk about it. Okay. So like, he's like the, he's the quintessential, like, he's the coach. He's the heart. Like, he's a really, he's a really interesting guy. I mean, he's calling students out. I mean, he's like, uh, he's a, he's your like typical football coach, you know, and he's the leader and he, he's, you know, um, but he has a really good relationship with his wife and they talk about everything and it's a really, I think, feel like it's like a very real relationship, like for TV drama. And uh, at the very end of it, there's this conflict and they're going to close the school where Eric Taylor's coaching. And so the, they want him to go back to his old school and like that, which was like the dominating football power in the state. So so basically he has this opportunity to go back there and have this super team. But at the same time, his wife, who's been a, a guidance counselor and everything for like 20 years, has an opportunity to be the main um, academic advisor and like regi- like basically the um, – the, the people that the admit, admissions office to be the president of the admissions office at a small liberal arts school in Philadelphia, and she's like they want her to do it, and so there's all this like conflict like are you going to do this like i've I've been with you for like twenty years like would you think about doing this and like changing and so finally he at the very end like he 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 goes with her and they move and then he, and then the, the very last scene of the show is him coaching football in Philadelphia. Like, so he actually, like, let her follow her dream. So, I mean, that's like, that's really, that's a lot of, like, that's a mutual submission thing that's going on. Um, and caring and thinking and, and everything else. Um, and so, in this passage, though, we do have these roles. Okay, yeah, they can come back. 
They come back. Come on back. Come on back. Um, they do have these roll. You guys need to hurry up and finish. Uh, finish that season. Season five, season six. Um, there is a role of submission in here because it says, you know, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and its, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit everything to their husbands. So here there is a role, um, that she also loves and serves Jesus, but it's an act of faith when she submits to her husband's role. So this is what we would call an amazing act of selflessness and love that she is giving to her husband, just as the church submits and loves the Lord Jesus. Okay, so there is a role, and there is this this in the Godhead itself. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have this idea of there is a Father, there is a Head. Um, but what it doesn't mean for the wife is that she. Um, and I want to read some of these things from the Keller's book. It's it's they're equal under Christ, okay? That the husband and the wife are equal in Christ's eyes, okay? It's not like a hierarchy in spirituality, but there's this role of father and son, which is also in the marriage relationship. But here's what it here's what it means in terms of like decision making. The husband's authority, like the son's over us, is never used to please himself, but only to serve the interests of his wife. Jesus never did anything to please himself. Okay? A wife, number two, a wife is never to be merely compliant, but to use her resources to empower. Um, She is to be her husband's most trusted friend, counselor, as he is hers. The give and take and listening and hearing each other out in discussion and sound arguments. So it's not like, hey, I want to do this, like you have to do it. When, when the husband and wife are making a decision, there has got to be like all kinds of discussion and pros and cons and back and forth. It's not just like, okay, I'm deciding this and that's it. Okay? That there has to be wisdom, um, as they try to work out what it means to be, um, submissive in that relationship. Three, a wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. No human being is to have this. Quote, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 The wife is never supposed to obey evil or something contrary to God's law and will. So in a relationship, like if, the, if there's a husband that's like saying, do something evil, do something wrong or whatever, you do not submit to your husband in that. Um, if the husband is emotionally destructive to you, you need to go to the church. You do, you do not submit to that. If the husband is being abusive or physically abusive or lying or all these kind of things then that means the wife needs to go to the church elders and say, hey, there's a big problem going on here. I need help. And so, all of these things are, 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 you know, again, we go back to this mutual submission idea and um, this picture we have of, of the father and the son. And then the husband's role, like I said, what did Jesus do? He was a servant leader. He was a servant leader. He did not lord it over the disciples. Uh, he didn't abuse. He didn't have like this tyrannical power. He loved and served and washed their feet as a common slave. Okay, and he, then he lays down his life. And so this is the picture of husbands for the wife. They should be the primary. They should be serving her. You know, breakfast in bed. I mean, it, it should be an amazing um, servanthood, a, a listening, a you know, a, a relationship that is. Um, like Christ has with His church. And so,
Biblical headship for the husband is not dic- like a dictator. Um, it's love, it's service, it's building up. It's seeing the potential in your spouse and trying to get her there or trying to get him there. It's like, I see all of this in you and I want to, I want to glorify God and help bring out the glory of God in you to the best of your ability. And so the, the marriage relationship is supposed to be this relationship where you're looking at each other and you're discerning gifts and abilities and talents and you're trying to help one another, um, love Jesus and love other people and, and to the best of their ability and to grow in their potential to love God and love other people. So a lot of this is like you're, you're getting into that relationship to, to make that person blossom. You're getting into that relationship to make that person grow and become a better man and a better woman. And so one of the tests for a good relationship, if I'm watching you guys in relationships, is to see that you're doing this, that you're actually you're coming together and you're becoming a better, a better man. You're becoming a better student. You're becoming a better believer. You're becoming a better, you know, better communicator. You're becoming a better person. Because of that relationship. And that's really important because if that stuff's not going on, then I would like have a lot of red flags and say, hey, I'm not sure if that's, if you guys are good for each other because I'm not seeing this like encouraging growth. Okay. That, that should be like in a positive relationship. And so, um, so the things that we're talking about in the actual marriage relationship, you can think about those in your dating relationships and in your friendships. How can you encourage one another? I mean, this is going back to base things. Just, Two people meet on the street, a guy and a girl. Like, as Christians, a brother and sister in Christ, what are we to do? We're to love that person. We're to respect that person. We're to serve that person. We're to help that person grow in Christ. We're to help, you know, we're to listen to that person. We're to, you know, encourage them to be all God's made them to be. And so in your dating relationships, that should be going on even more and more. You know, talking about your life, talking about your future, talking about what you want to do. Um, I wanted to read you one one illustration from Kathy Keller here. I know that maybe I'm a little long here, but um, <clears throat> they had a decision to make as a couple, and basically the decision was um, whether or not they were going to move to New York City and plant this church. And they were in Philadelphia at the time, and Tim Keller was a professor at Westminster Seminary, and there was a call for him to go to New York and start what now is Redeemer Church. This is back in like the mid to late 80s. And uh, they had all kinds of discussions and they were happy in Philadelphia and like she, did, Kathy didn't really want to go and the kids didn't want to really go and everything, you know, and, and then Tim just kind of said, okay, I'm not going to do it. And then Kathy said, oh, no, you don't because you feel called by God. You need to like do what you feel God has called to you to do. After they discussed and talked all about this and then she, by faith, Followed him and to New York to be involved in this big church plant and, and she loved it. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like she wanted him to make the decision after they had discussed every possible idea, but she was encouraging him to like go for it in his God given role to lead. Okay. And so they did it. And I wanted to read that. Um, 2.43. Hold on a second. Are you guys okay? Because she's going to explain it better than I do. Um, okay, so she says, uh, But in a marriage where there are only two votes, how can a stalemate be broken without someone having to give way? 
In the vast majority of cases, the stalemate is broken because each will try to give the other his or her pleasure. The wife will try to respect the husband's leadership, and the husband will in turn try to please his wife. If this dynamic is in place in the course of a healthy biblical marriage, overruling will be rare. But what of a case where both parties cannot agree, but some kind of decision must be made? Someone must have the right to cast a deciding vote and thus take the greater responsibility for the decision. This should be the place where the, where the one the Bible calls head takes the accountability. When it happens, both people submit to the role. The husband was submitting to the call of God and the wife was submitting to the call of her husband. Okay, Often, an intelligent husband doesn't want this role, and the intelligent wife does. The situation could be chaotic, but here we are called to act out of a drama of redemption, where the son voluntarily gives the headship to the father, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. In the late 1980s, here's the story, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia, where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an office offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited about the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, quote, Well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. However, I replied, Oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this logjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Tim made the decision to come to New York City and plant Redeemer Church. The whole family, my sons included, consider it one of the most truly manly things he ever did because he was quite scared, but he felt a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with, but it is clear that God worked in us and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. Let me ask you, what do you think about that? Does that sound crazy? Or sound like, have you heard that way of thinking through these roles? Not sure. I think I might come to the same conclusion, but put it in different terms. Okay. I think, I feel like gender roles is such a charged term. It is. Yeah. I think it's more of like a family dynamic. Maybe like, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on people's personalities too, in a way. Like, I mean, you know, we have like what the Bible says that our, you know, a marriage should look like, but people's personalities have a big part too. Like somebody who might be more, you know, have a, a really strong like type A personality. Let's, yeah. Let's get things done, and that might be the wife. Right. Mm-hmm. Might be more like I'm cool. Let's go. With the yeah. Like, he doesn't mm-hmm. care, and they're both very happy with that uh, way that works. Right. So fine with that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I would agree. You're, you're, different personalities coming together, and it's going to look different with mm-hmm. different uh, different relationships. I think there is something to be said about there being gender roles, like as far as what the Bible says, but there's also something to be said about personalities and just mm-hmm. different people. Everybody's different, so yeah. 
Let me finish up. The last thing here is just this, the power for marriage, and that kind of goes back to the beginning too. The, the gospel is the power. Um, it's it's Christ the bridegroom and His uh, pursuit and love uh, for His people and the church. And so, when He says in verse twenty five, "Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her," He's talking about the very picture of the gospel and and God sending His Son Jesus to leave heaven put on flesh, and to come uh, for His bride. And so whenever I do a wedding, I typically tell both of the bride and the groom that are standing there, I tell them, you're both brides today. You're actually both brides today. That the Lord Jesus is, is your, your groom. And uh, it's because of His love for you and His death on the cross for you that He is going to strengthen you and empower you and give you the hope and the power to love one another in this relationship over the long term through thick and thin, through blood, sweat, and tears, and children, and everything else. That the power of the gospel is what, what, is, what, is what we need in, in a marriage to make it last. And, uh, and we get that power by continually going back to the well of who Jesus is. You know, when that person sins against you and does something that just tears you up, what do you have to do? You gotta go back and say, you know what? I need to forgive them. Why? Because Jesus saw me and I was His enemy and I hated Him. I shook my fist at Him and He still loved me and died for me and rose for me. And so that beauty of the Gospel and the fact that He did that for me says, I can now forgive you um, though you've sinned against me. And I can love you and I can continue to pursue you to, to repentance. And so, the power for, for relationship to, to last, for commitment, is not in yourself. Um, there's nothing... The, the preparation is, and the power is all the same. It's going back to who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And so, uh, marriage is going to reveal your heart. Relationships, we've been saying it this whole semester, will reveal your hearts. Because we bump and we hit into each other and we see our sin and we see their sin and and communication is hard, and all of these things. And and so, the power to love, the power to forgive, the power to relate is, is back with remembering, hey, we were a big sinner and Jesus loved us and died for us. So, um, the, it's, marriage is called the great, the great furnace of sanctification. Because it's like you're in this committed relationship where you can't get out of it. Okay, it's committed. You're, you love each other. You got the paper in hand got the rings on the finger and it's like god uses that like iron sharpens iron okay and there there is friction and there is difficult things but guess what it makes you run back to jesus and and understand the gospel and understand how to love and he's going to be in there and he gives lots and lots and lots of grace for marriage and for relationships so let me pray lord thank you for uh tonight i know this was long but thank you for the gospel of grace for the picture of jesus the bridegroom coming for his bride, the church. Lord, that's the whole big picture that we see in marriage. Um, and so, Lord, would we, would you prepare us, uh, Father? Some of us may never be married. That's okay. Uh, Lord, because we have you, because we are actually brides and you are our bridegroom and you are the one who fills us and loves us. And so, um, but many of these folks in here are going to be married. So, Lord, I pray that you would prepare them, encourage them, um, even in their, relationships and friendships now, dating, whatever, uh, you would be with them and encourage them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.